Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Inside Baseball, a look at healthcare politics and policy in Washington, part of Hall Render's Practical Solutions podcast series. I am John Williams, managing partner of Hall Render's Washington, D.C. office. As always, I am joined by my colleague and D.C. cohort, Andrew Coates. Andrew, how are you? Doing good. How are we doing? Oh, we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Um, not sure what I can say about Congress in that regard. I mean, they're continuing to do what I can only refer to as a as a slow roll into the first session of the 118th. Um, One of the slower starts to a Congress that I can remember. Yeah, it has been. It has been really slow. And speaking of slow, I'm I'm, I'm going to touch base on some of that stuff real quick. But we have something uh, rather exciting uh, in store for the podcast later. You want to tell everybody about it? So everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people do fantasy sports and you draft players that you think will have a good year in whatever league. We're going to do a fantasy draft for D.C. Um, and by this, I mean, there's going to be a healthcare focus, but also just we're going to draft items that we think you're going to be reading about or hearing about in 2023. Um, how we score this, I don't know. There's no first <laughs> way, but I think it's a fun way to kind of hit on some of the big issues that we're going to be hearing about this year. And we'll look back at the end of the year and see who had the better team. Or at least a way to fill up this podcast since, uh, there's, there's not too much to talk about. Um, at least as far as Capitol Hill concern is concerned, and I'll sort of do some housekeeping on that role on that side real quick before we dive into the draft. When I say it's, it's slow, uh, I mean, as slow as in the Senate has passed one bill uh, that makes technical corrections to the Controlled Substances Act and nothing else. They are really moving slowly over there. I mean, they're doing confirmations for judges and, and executive branch positions, but nothing really on the legislative front. Uh, the House has passed 28 bills. Only three of them are even related to health care. And those three deal with either ending the vaccine mandate or the public health emergency. So not much uh, legislative productivity. Uh, Senate Help Committee did hold a hearing on workforce shortages. It was the first help hearing for the new chairman, Bernie Sanders, and ranking member Bill Cassidy. Uh, that may result in some legislation down the road, but really nothing for now. Uh, on the administrative executive branch side of things, uh, I do want to note for everybody that the DEA released a long-awaited proposed rule on prescribing controlled substances via telehealth. That does not seem to have made uh, anyone very happy. Uh, they did it uh, after 6 p.m. via a press release, uh, which is essentially an agency's way of, of hoping nobody's going to notice for a few days. Normally, that stuff goes to the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, which then publishes in the Federal Register. Everybody gets notice that it's uh, at OIRA. Uh, we got nothing but a press release. Um, it has reached the Federal Register and been published, but um, so the gist there is that they're not adopting what has been in place during the pandemic as far as the, the prescription of controlled substances for via telemedicine. During the, during the pandemic, uh, DEA registered practitioners could, could issue prescriptions for controlled substances without conducting an in-person medical evaluation if they met like certain, certain conditions. Under these new rules, there is some flexibility in that telemedicine prescriptions uh, would be authorized when a qualifying telemedicine referral has been made by another practitioner. So there's that flexibility that didn't exist before. But uh, under the new rule, when you don't have 
a prior in-person exam or a qualified referral that I just mentioned. Uh, prescriptions are prescriptions are limited to 30 days, a 30-day supply. Uh, you have to search the state prescription drug monitoring program. Prescriber must be licensed in the originating and the distant site location. So wherever the doc is, it's got to be licensed. And whatever state the patient's in, the doc has to be licensed. No Schedule II drugs or opioids can be prescribed except subject to the 30-day supply limit I have above, unless uh, you're talking about buprenorphine, um, which is for opioid use disorder. So, uh, and they're giving everybody a six-month grace period to comply. So there's more on that. Paul Render's website uh, under our resources tab, if you would like more information on that uh, on that proposed rule. Real quick on the, just the workforce shortages, uh, help hearing. I tracked that. I thought it was interesting. I wanted to see kind of how Bernie and, and Cassidy would get along in their first yeah. <laughs> um, But it was, I think, worth just worth noting, Bernie um, talked about kind of legislation that was needed regarding workforce shortages this year from the Senate. And he mentioned um, expanding the GME program, which actually, I think that's Finance Committee. Um, he mentioned that as a must-do and expanding Teaching Health Center program as well as nursing shortages and emergency medical services. So, That'll be ahead. interesting because they, you know, there was 200 new GME slots in the omnibus last December. A uh, hundred of those went to psychiatry. So uh, it'll, it'll just be interesting because, you know, some people argue, well, we already did that in December, but uh, right. certainly and something that I agree with you, certainly something that needs to be addressed. And I, I think, you know, I had a chance to, to talk to Bill Cassidy a couple of weekends ago and we touched on this and yeah, he also noted that that's something he's looking forward to working with, with uh, Chairman Sanders on. Right. And then he, Cassidy did mention, you know, the government doesn't have to do everything. And he talked about how they need to address uh, physician burnout, um, which he, he thinks is partly due to overregulation by the government. So there's certainly differences there between the two of them. Um, but also some some areas that they can work on. Exactly. Okay, so with those housekeeping items out of the way, we thought we'd have a little fun in the prognostication department. Andrew, you want to tee this up? Yeah, absolutely. So we have, uh, we put together about eight different items. And between the two of us, we're going to draft those items, which we think will be newsworthy this year. John, I think we did a coin flip beforehand and you won the toss. So you get the first pick of our 2023 okay. fantasy DC things draft. Very good. Well, I will go first and not defer. And uh, my first selection is Ron DeSantis is running for president. I know, surprising. Um, <laughs> but uh, he will not announce until after Memorial Day. So I'm walking out on a really big limb uh, with that one. I know he's um, he's got a book that's come out this week, um, apparently doing very well, at least as far as Amazon's concerned. Uh, he's been making visits to other states. You know, he's he's doing all the things that you're supposed to do when you're uh, when you're preparing to run for president. Um, so. DeSantis running for president, but not announcing until after Memorial Day. Why do you think after Memorial Day? Any reasoning behind that? 
Well, because he's really in no rush. It doesn't at least seem like seem like he's you know the the legislative session in Tallahassee is, I think, getting close to finishing up, and I know that he's going to want to, or he at least he plans to uh, highlight a lot of the legislative accomplishments uh, he will have had in in that session of the General Assembly down there. So I think he's waiting until that's wrapped up, and. Frankly, I don't know if there's anything in it for him to announce sooner rather than later. Um, you know, no, yes, I Trump. Agree. I, I, when you have a national kind of name like and platform that he does, I mean, I guess you could say the local politics of Iowa and New Hampshire, you want to get up there and start locking down votes and donors, but he has such a big platform. It's not like, you know, Nikki Haley to John Sununu, someone who right. who's not known that needs to kind of get out in front and, and get people to recognize them. Well, and somebody else had an article, I think it was maybe the Washington Post, talked about this weekend summit he had down in Miami um, a couple of weekends ago where he had all these big dollar donors in the Republican Party fly down there and, and spend a weekend meeting with him and his political team and and uh, a lot of people down there um, at that event who have previously supported Trump. So, um, you know, he's courting the donors, he's releasing the book, he's making the visits. I found it interesting that he's, you know, instead of going to Iowa or New Hampshire, he's been to New York and Illinois. Um, so a little bit out of the box strategy there early where most people running for president their first trips are usually to Iowa or New Hampshire or some early primary state. But um, so, yeah, so running for president, not announcing until after Memorial Day. Little history note, you know who announced really early? And this has always been kind of the case study of why you announce early was Jimmy Carter announced a month after the 74 midterms. His famous kind of stump speech on that was he told his mom he's running for president. She always said, president of what? <laughs> um, I was regarded as why you get in if you but of course Carter wasn't really known then right so he had no. to get out there and get up and, and get to those states early on did not know that did not Jimmy know Carter that. history for you there you go all right your turn all right so I'm looking across the board here and with my first pick I'm going to take Kevin McCarthy's 2023 playbook. I think be prepared to read a lot of, you know, if you're a Politico or Bloomberg reader, a lot of headlines dealing, mentioning McCarthy's playbook. And of course, this is true with all speakers of the House, right? Um, or all eyes on Kevin McCarthy. But it raises a good point. You know, what is, what are uh, McCarthy's top goals for this year? And I think we're starting to see that slowly trickle out. Um, but like any Speaker of the House, you're probably your number one job is maintaining the majority, um, right? That's how you're ultimately going to be measured is if your party stays in power um, after the next election. And so his main job, it's a little bit under the radar, but it's flying around the country with his most vulnerable members, uh, a lot of the freshman members who are you know, that's the easiest time to beat an incumbent is their first term before their name gets known. So to get out there and travel and raise money with them. Um, 
oversight is going to be huge in this Congress. And they've, I mean, this Congress is shaping up to be a massive oversight Congress. Uh, and I don't just mean from your former committee, government reform, but it seems like all the committees are dipping their toe in the oversight water. Um, and the plan just seems to be <laughs> investigate everything right now uh, and tie up the White House with having to respond to these investigations and hearings and subpoenas and kind of control the message as opposed to the White House getting to dictate what, what the messages are. So we're already seeing the big ones that are all over cable news, um, the handling of COVID, the Twitter censoring, uh, train derailment in Ohio. You know, those are the big ones that will just, the administration kind of wants to, to avoid. But then you have the more kind of um, in the weeds investigations uh, going on. So waste, fraud, and abuse of authority in federal agencies, um, federal regulations that, and the burdens they create on Americans everything down to even like hospital CEO compensation is gonna be a big item um, this year for a, a number of the different house committees. Um, so we're starting to see that play out already. Yeah, you you know, you know mentioned my former committee oversight and, and well, it used to be called government reform and oversight. Now I think it's just called oversight and reform. Um, it's chairman Jamie Comer of Kentucky. Um, I know earlier this year mentioned that um, how hospitals spent their provider relief fund monies is something that they were going to look at. So that I think that fits, I think you're right, that fits within that more niche area of oversight so that it, and they're not just looking at, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop, right? They're actually going to look at some, what they view as more substantive policy-related oversight, Um and how those agencies, you know, same thing with PPP, they're going to look at the PPP loan stuff. And so, yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, McCarthy overall, um, with what, a four vote, five vote majority. Um, yeah, that playbook is going to come in handy um, because it, it just takes one person getting sick, right? I mean, you see it in the Senate right now with you know, Senator Fetterman of, of Pennsylvania having, you know, had a stroke and and now having, you know, unfortunately suffering from depression and being admitted to the hospital. And, and that, that you know, the reality is it puts the Democrats in Senate down a vote and uh, yeah. nobody's sure when he's going to be coming back. So that significantly changes the, right, the voting dynamics there. And McCarthy's got the same problem really in the House with his, with his narrow majority. No, I certainly hope the best for, for Senator Fetterman. That's, yep. I never like to see that, but it's going to bring Kamala Harris back up to the up to the hill quite a bit to break ties in the Senate yep. um, with a closer margin. And you know, to that to your point on McCarthy kind of holding his party in line, he has to maintain sort of the fringe element of of the House. Um, these members who grab a lot of headlines. I think we saw a certain member from Georgia call for a national divorce yeah. last week. Um, you know. In, Let's be honest, like every Congress has these members. And this goes back to days when we were on the Hill, right? Um, right. But the problem is, or McCarthy's problem is, you know, he really called in a favor to get the gavel with this right. group. Um, Made a lot of promises. Yep. You know, I liken it to one of my favorite movies is Goodfellas. And that scene when the restaurant owner goes to Polly and asked to partner with him in running his restaurant. 
you know, and there, there's that moment when Paul looks at him and says, it's, you know, that's not even a fair deal. <laughs> kind of similar to the speaker vote where I, I think one of the house members, maybe it was Chip Roy, I'm, I'm not sure which one, said they finally agreed to McCarthy to vote for McCarthy as speaker when they couldn't think of anything else to ask for. So <laughs> true. how far, you know, how will the far right treat this Congress uh, will be similar to the, the restaurant and Goodfellas with eventually burned down, right? Sure. Um, I think that's going to be interesting and see how McCarthy deals with that. And then he also has the debt ceiling uh, fight mm-hmm. coming, um, whether that gets raised or lifted. I think that's what that comes to a head as early as July and September at the latest. So you're going to have this stare down between the White House and McCarthy. Republicans never win on these. Um, no. Well, you're going to have a stare down between McCarthy and the, and the people in the caucus that you're talking about. Right. Right. You're going to have that stare down first before he even gets to negotiate exactly. the Schumer or the White House. Exactly. So be prepared to read a lot about uh, extraordinary measures and federal government on the brink uh, between now and then. I, it's in the past, it always worked at its way out. It worked itself out somehow, but uh, that's certainly going to be in the news. So that's kind of an overview of his playbook. So I shift back to you with your second pick. Well, my second pick in our draft is a uh, is a uh, highly entertaining dish cuts fix. Ooh. Yeah, disproportionate share hospitals. If if everyone will recall, um, there's about eight billion dollars in ACA related dish cuts um, that have been postponed ever since the ACA passed. Um, folks will remember that. Part of the structure of the ACA is that because everyone was going to do Medicaid expansion in the states, that states didn't need as much Medicaid funding. So uh, there's $8 billion in Medicaid cuts that can be made. Well, we all know how that worked out in states that chose not to expand Medicaid. Um, so in order, in order to prevent these cuts from, from taking place, Congress has passed legislation uh, sort of kicking that can down the road uh, for so many years at a time. And, and the last postponement expires at the end of this fiscal year. So September 30th, um, and the, the, the cuts will then start again on October 1st if Congress doesn't do anything. And uh, it is my pick that Congress will pass legislation to postpone the dish cuts again that will be obviously a healthcare bill, um, which means that given the politi- political dynamics and the makeup on the Hill and divided government, it might be the only healthcare related bill that passes this year. Um, and if that's the case, then we may see more items in that bill than just the dish cuts fix. But um, that is my second pick for our draft. Is yeah, so I like cuts. that pick because as you mentioned, there's just, there's not a lot of healthcare vehicles moving this year. Uh, and that's gonna be the one that everyone kind of tries to get their, get a hook into. Uh, so we'll see if Congress keeps that clean or what it does with it, but there certainly will be a lot of uh, a lot of news items and that will be mentioned in no shortage of meetings up on the Hill uh, this coming year. With my second pick, and I really like this pick, I feel like I'm getting a good value pick here. Um, we go with, Biden getting challenged um, in, a, 
it's in a primary. And we haven't seen, it's been a long time, we haven't seen a sitting president get challenged um, since the pre-internet days. But if uh, President Biden does get challenged, and I'm talking about a major candidate, not... So not Marianne Williamson, because she's already exactly. announced that she's challenging him. So you're saying that Marianne Williamson is not a serious candidate. I guess I am, right? <laughs> um, not that I disagree with you, but... But if some a bigger name, like think, you know, back when Eugene McCarthy, um, Ronald Johnson, someone like of that. Well, yeah, well, you know, you mentioned Carter, right? I mean, Ted Kennedy. Right. Oh, in 1980. Yeah. He, he challenged Carter and that really weakened him. Yeah. Um, and I think Kennedy, he was clearly he wasn't going to win that that primary, but he wouldn't pull out of the race. Mm -mm. And, yeah. Well, all the way to the convention, give that famous speech. Yeah, exactly. And um, that final, the final moment back when you know this was just you know, the the major network showing the convention. The final moment of that convention was uh, Carter's acceptance speech, and then Kennedy up on the stage, and they didn't join. They didn't do the political kind of hands of unity. Right. 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 Um, so that that's another example. Um, you know, Ford got challenged by Reagan in in 76 Indeed. and sure did um, so does the does the challenge against biden come from the progressive bernie sanders aoc wing or does it come from i guess the more moderate wing up you're right you'd think it would be the progressive wing but at the same time president biden is been a fairly progressive president in the policies right. he's pushing and the White right. House is pushing. Right. Um, and I would think if, if I'm in the White House advising President Biden and he wants to run again, um, I'd be saying, you know, you you may want to start shifting to the center here uh, sooner than later um, and, and start running on some issues that can grab more moderate voters. So I don't know um, where that challenger would come from. But I do know if you're the White House, you certainly want to do what you can to sort of weaken potential challengers that would be a threat. Well, and I think they've done that systematically, right, by the way that they changed up the primary system so that they're not going to Iowa. They're not going to do that. They're going to go to the states where Biden is strongest, right? South Carolina, right out of the gate, they're going to go where he's where the, to states where they know he's not at risk of losing. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that and i think you look back at when there were a lot of challenges um to to sitting presidents and that was what late 60s 70s mm -hmm. watergate vietnam just yep. a general sense of government overreach and we're in a very similar there's a you know, different reasons but it, there's a lot of anti-washington sentiment right now so i think this is something we could see and you know if it were to happen um i think it's bad news obviously for, for president biden and national democrats in 2024 very good well i guess we're what to my third pick third pick all right well and my third pick in our fantasy i guess <laughs> draft or whatever we're calling this i am going to tee up the ever oh i don't know what the right word for it is it's certainly not um entertaining but it is uh, uh interesting i think is a a workplace violence regulation um the 
administration and every administration does this, they put out a, a regulatory agenda uh, at least twice a year. Um, and it lists all of the regulations that are either in the process of being finished or mid-draft or whatever, but it also lists the regulations that are in the pre-writing phase. So it, it's this agenda is what we look to um, to get a sense of what might be coming up on the regulatory front, uh, coming out of HHS. And this actual this one actually is not uh, an HHS uh, rule. It is a, a Department of Labor rule um, called the Prevention of Workplace Violence in Healthcare and Social Assistance. Uh, it's in the pre-rule stage. It's being handled by OSHA. Uh, so it is a DOL, again, a DOL rule. Um, OSHA published a request for information way back in 2016, where they solicited information, mostly from, from healthcare employers, workers, uh, other healthcare subject matter experts on the, on the impact of, of violence and prevention strategies and anything else along those lines that would be useful to the agency, to OSHA. Um, there was a broad coalition of labor unions, the nurses unions, that petitioned OSHA to do something, uh, uh, to set some sort of standard along those lines. Um, OSHA recognized the need to, to do that. Of course, you know, 2016, 2017, we're talking about when we had a change of administration, right? So that went on the back burner um, during the Trump years. And now it looks like it's come back. Uh, the House of Representatives during the last Congress, when Democrats were in the majority, they did pass a uh, workplace violence rule that was never taken up by the Senate. That rule would have given OSHA uh, a significant amount of regulatory authority in this area. For that reason, it was uh, strongly opposed by uh, American Hospital Association, Chamber of Commerce, other, other business groups, I guess, if you will, and, and a lot of healthcare hospital-related groups opposed it. Two, so this may be the administration's attempt to jumpstart that again. So sometime this year, I think we are going to see a, a proposed rule on workplace violence come out of OSHA. Yeah, it's interesting, um, the timing with with Marty Walsh just leaving DOL mm -hmm. as, as secretary and, and, and taking another position. So um, we'll see what the new labor secretary that they, if they can get the nominee in confirmed if it has to wait for them to kind of go through the confirmation process, which could be controversial uh, from the, the sounds of it. So that's definitely going to be in the news and something to watch. It's a good, it's a good third round pick. Thank you. Um, with my third pick, I'm going to go with um, a subject you hear a bit about, and it's really kind of ratcheted back up in the news of late. That's congressional earmarks. Now, recall in, what, two years ago, the Democrats ended a 10-year moratorium on federal earmarks. And earmarks are, or they're basically small grants to projects in congressional districts or states. And by small, I mean in the 100000 to $4 million range. And the, the thinking is you attach these projects to annual spending bills to ensure bipartisan buy-in. Uh, so bills are passing with not just party line votes. Yeah, let's let's call it greasing the wheel, right? <laughs> That's greasing the legislative process. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah, the optics have never been good. 
um, really for either party here, uh, but particularly for Republicans, you know, bridge to nowhere, right? Right. Um, Google earmarks and you come up, one of the first hits is a heritage report that calls into question, this is recent, this is 2022, um, 1.6 million for the equitable growth of shellfish industry in Rhode Island, or 4.2 million for sheep experiment station infrastructure improvements in Idaho, and 3 million for the Mahatma Gandhi Museum in Houston. So we're starting to see these kind of get brought back up again and bandied about in the news. But at the same time, the members that bring these up know that if it's Congress not kind of giving out the, the grants, then it's going to be unelected bureaucrats and the agencies doing it, right? So it's an interesting kind of dichotomy here. I think one of the wow moments, and you, you know, we often will send each other texts or headlines, um, was, was late last year. And I forget if you sent it to me or I sent it to you, but it was there House Republicans voting to keep earmarks in place for this Congress uh, and by a big margin. It was over 100 votes. So I'm playing a little bit of long game here, but I'm predicting by fall, you're going to see continue to see earmark bashing in in, in the Congress, especially in the House. Well, yeah, yeah. Earmark bashing in the House. And, you know, we just learned in the last 24 hours that um, there are certain types of earmarks that House Republicans are just not going to do. And the House Appropriations Committee has announced that there are certain accounts, they refer to them, you can think of them as agencies in general, that they're not going to do earmarks for this year. Um, And one of those is the Labor HHS Appropriations um, Bill. They're not going to do earmarks. So whether it's, you know, take a pick of an agency under HHS, right, whether it's SAMHSA or, or CMS or HRSA or whoever it is, you know, HRSA and SAMHSA being good examples of, of agencies that have been responsible for distributing earmarks that were approved by Congress in the past. Well, House Republicans said last night that we're not doing them. We're not going to do labor HHS um, earmarks. So hospitals, health systems, a lot of folks in the healthcare space that were hoping to get the House of Representatives to, uh, or their, their Congress person to, uh, put in an earmark request for them are, are going to be out of luck this year. So yeah, you're right. It's the bashing is going to continue. What's interesting is under that heritage report, the next link was a Brookings report. Now Brookings heritage being the conservative think tank, Brookings being the more liberal. And it talked about that while Democrats sought more earmarks in 2021, 2022, the Republicans actually asked for more money. So I think they eliminated the defense account. They literally, as you mentioned, the HHS account, by doing that, that may be a way of controlling the spending right. uh, that, that comes out. Yep, yep, I think you're right. All right, last pick. Okay, for my last pick in our draft, political draft, um, I'm actually gonna go with um, the relationship between Bernie Sanders and Bill Cassidy mm. will be more amicable than uh, folks might have anticipated. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that committee uh, is that if Republicans would have gone by seniority, then Rand Paul would have been next in line to be the highest ranking Republican instead of Bill Cassidy. And the idea of, of Rand Paul and, and Bernie Sanders being the responsible for running a committee together would have been just the height 
of political theater. And that would have been much watch, must watch TV as far as you know, political geeks like me are concerned. But there were there would have been areas too where they would have worked together. I think they would have both enjoyed bashing drug companies together. Um, but I do think that that Cassidy and and Sanders are going to work better together than people think. And I I have a little bit of insight on this, and in that I was able to talk to Dr. Bill Cassidy about this a couple of weekends ago, and asked him about you know his relationship with with Sanders, and he said that you know he gets along with Sanders pretty well. Um, there's not a lot of animosity there. There are going to be certainly things that they don't agree upon. You know, Dr. Bill, being a doctor, certainly wants to decrease the regulatory burden on physicians uh, so they can spend more time, you know, practicing instead of doing paperwork and complying with regulations. I'm not sure there's a regulation Bernie ever saw that he didn't like. But there is other areas where I think there is room to work together. Uh, you, you know, we talked about workforce shortage being one of those earlier, um, but also in behavioral health. Behavioral health is a huge issue <clears throat> for Bill Cassidy uh, for personal family reasons. And I know that's also been one that's been a big issue for, for Bernie Sanders as well. And, and Cassidy is, is a member of this, what's known in the Senate as the Gang of Eight. Uh, it's these eight Republicans that have a, a history of working across the aisle uh, on bipartisan legislation to get bipartisan legislation through the Senate. So I think you're going to see a, a, a better working relationship uh, between Cassidy and Sanders than I think a lot of people had anticipated. Yeah, I agree. And both these members are not afraid to jump in the water on any healthcare related issue. So right. there's going to be no shortage of headlines um, and news coming out of that committee and, and action coming out of the health committee on healthcare. Indeed. All right. All right. So last one. Last one, and with every fantasy draft, you need a, a good sleeper. And I think there's no better sleeper uh, than what I'm going to take in the fourth and final pick, nonpartisan advisory commissions and panels. And by this, I'm talking about MedPAC and MACPAC. Now, who is MedPAC? MedPAC is the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission. Um, which was created by Congress in 1997. It advises Congress on issues impacting Medicare, particular Medicare reimbursement. For decade, for over a decade now, you know, we've, John, you and I, we've written newsletters and DC updates, and in for the large part, uh, this decade has been filled with a lot of healthcare news, whether it's passage of the ACA, the attempts to repeal the ACA, COVID all the massive spending to deal with COVID. Um, there's been no shortage of news, but one constant is always in the healthcare world is always reports coming out of MedPAC and MACPAC. MACPAC is kind of the sister to MedPAC and that it deals with Medicaid. These, report, these reports that come out and they, they come out, they meet monthly or bi-monthly and um, they have annual and semi-annual reports. They're important, and it's really how healthcare policy is made. Um, John, you and I have both been congressional staffers, and you don't just learn things by sitting inside of Longworth and Rayburn and, and Cannon. Uh, you have to read these reports and find out, you know, what nonpartisan experts are advising Congress on uh, in regards to Medicare payment. And I, I think in kind of the first year, without major healthcare policy news coming out of D.C. Get ready to hear a lot more about these these med pack reports. They're highly technical. They're in the weeds, kind of hence the 
sleeper nature of my pick, uh, but it's a very much underrated facet of healthcare policy. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, it is certainly in the weeds over there. They've got some pretty deep policy expertise. Uh, you know, people that get appointed to MACPAC or MedPAC, right? They're they're typically from outside of Washington. These commission members or you know hospital CEOs or or physicians or you know people who work in their in their day jobs, right, in healthcare, and they're certainly subject matter experts. And then you've got the staff at these commissions who are also really good subject matter experts on this stuff. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think um, they're going to they're gonna get a lot more attention just because there's not going to be a ton happening on the Hill. So people are going to be focused, at least, you know, folks in the DC healthcare media who need stuff to write about are going to be looking to these commissions a lot more. Um, you know, the interesting part I've always found is that, you know, take, you know, MedPAC, for example, right, they make all these recommendations to Congress on what Congress should do on a Medicare policy. And that's what they're charged with doing, right? That's what Congress asked them to do. That's why they exist. Um, yet you see all these recommendations that they make to Congress all the time that Congress just doesn't pay attention to. I mean, they, they, they pay attention to some of them, but um, a lot of them, they don't. But yeah. um, I think uh, we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll just have to to wait and see what they come up with that's that's new, but uh, I think they're definitely going to get some more attention. You're right. Well, so that does it. Yeah, I guess we'll have to see how it all plays out. As always, and however it all plays out, uh, we'll be there to tell you about it here on Inside Baseball. So thank you for joining us on this edition. As always, if you'd like to receive more information about what Andrew and I do or how we provide federal advocacy services to our clients, please visit uh, our website at hallrender.com or reach out to me at jwilliams at hallrender.com or Andrew at acoats at hallrender.com. And one last disclaimer, please remember, the views expressed in this podcast are those of me and Andrew only and do not constitute legal advice. So long, everybody.